Our special guest tonight, Joseph Nye, is one of those very significant elder, but really still quite young figures, uh, who bounces between government and high academia. He has been, until just about a year ago, for some six or seven years, dean of the Kennedy School of Government at Harvard University. During the Clinton administration, he held a number of posts within government, uh, ending as Assistant Secretary of Defense for International Security Affairs. And Joseph Nye is a serious scholar who writes intelligently and intelligibly, that uh, being a somewhat more rare quality than mere intelligence, uh, and has done many very important articles in earlier books. And the one that's aroused a great deal of attention over the last few years is titled Soft Power, The Means to Success in World Politics. It occurs to me that you are telling us in this book that this administration uh, has failed the Willie Loman test. Willie Loman in Death of a Salesman tells his sons, it isn't important to be liked. It isn't to be merely liked. You've got to be well-liked. And you're saying that the U.S. is not as well-liked as possibly it could be if we played it differently. Well, I think that's true. If you just look at the public opinion polls, the decline in the attractiveness of the U.S. is quite dramatic. I mean, we lost about 30 points per country in Europe, including countries like Britain that supported us in the Iraq War. Uh, but even more dramatic is the decline in our popularity in the Muslim world. Um, there, uh, if you take Indonesia, which is the largest Muslim country, in the year 2000, mm -hmm. three-quarters of Indonesians had a positive view of the United States. By the end of the Iraq War in May 2003, uh, that was down to 15%. Now, fortunately, that went up a little bit after we helped with tsunami relief back up to 40%. It's still about half of what it was. But we're in a difficult world, and there are many competing powers and competing interests. Um, and in such a difficult world, much like the Greece that Thucydides described, or like the Italian states that Machiavelli uh, dealt with, um, perhaps the Machiavellian maxim does really apply, i.e., that it is better to be feared than to be loved. Well, there's something in that. I mean, uh, it, as a great power, you have to make sure that people respect you, respect your power. But Machiavelli went on, and after he gave the advice to the prince that it's better to be feared to be loved, he said, but worst of all is to be hated. After all, the opposite of fear uh, is not uh, a love. The opposite of uh, love is hatred. Well, then, then we come directly to that question, which has generated much middle-brow excitement all through the media in recent years. Uh, why do they hate us? Well, it's not clear that they all hate us, and it's not clear who they are. I mean, if you look at the Muslim world today, you have a, 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 a large number of Muslims who fear that American policies are not in their interests and who dislike American policies. But when you look at the polls taken by the Pew Trust or others, uh, shows that they do still like American culture. They do admire American values. Uh, when you ask them, why are you so anti-American now, it turns out it's our policies, not uh, us. Well, it is our policies as regards two particular places in the world more than anything else, is it not? Those two places are Israel and now Iraq. Yeah, I think Iraq has been the big change. I mean, the, the, our policies on Israel have not changed that dramatically over the years. Our policy in Iraq clearly did. The invasion of Iraq uh, led to a huge decline. 
Uh, it's true that on Israel, there's a feeling that we're not even-handed or fair to the Palestinians. And I think to recover American attractiveness or soft power, we're probably going to have to get a political solution in Iraq, which ain't easy. And uh, we're going to have to show some progress on an Israeli-Palestinian uh, peace process. You can't solve this, but you can show some degree of progress, as Clinton had tried to. You've got a colleague across the hall, or is he across the quad? I'm not sure. Are you, are you appointed, among other things, in the Department of Governments at Harvard? Uh, well, I I used to teach in the Faculty of Arts and Sciences, but now I'm purely in the Kennedy School of Government. Yeah. Well, I have in mind, of course, Sam Huntington. Sure. Yeah. Who takes a somewhat different view. His uh, Clash of Civilizations work of some 10 years ago uh, got an awful lot of attention, and he's arguing essentially that there is an intrinsic value and tradition incompatibility between uh, what might well be called Christendom, though he doesn't quite call mm -hmm. it that, and the Islamic world. There's also a becoming clash, he says, quite possibly between uh, the West and the Far East, that is China. Mm -hmm. But with regard to Islamic uh, Western relations, he sees there are some intrinsic unbridgeable gaps and misunderstandings which are finally not so much misunderstandings as correct understandings that these are very very different civilizations and something has to give and he argues as well there's a, there's a new energy that has been generated somehow in the Islamic world partly on the basis of resentment uh, and grievance but also with a demographic base which gives them ultimately tremendous power to challenge uh, the West. Well, Sam's a good friend, and I think he gets part of it right, but I also think he uh, gets part of it wrong. Which part does he get wrong? Well, he takes Toynbee's concept of civilizations, mm -hmm. which are which are uh, large constructs which are somewhat imprecise, and he says those are the source of conflicts. Uh, calls Africa a civilization, or the Far East a civilization, Confucian civilization, and that uh, means the difference between uh, these countries within these regions is downplayed. But I think on the major issue of Islam versus the West, as he calls it, uh, he doesn't realize or doesn't pay enough attention to the fact that there are enormous differences within Islam. You know, the Iran-Iraq war between uh, Muslims, um, and that went on for, for eight years. Uh, there is many bloody borders within Islam as between Islam and the West. I think the other point is that the threat we face from Islam now is a reflection of a civil war inside Islamic civilization between a group of, uh, of extremists who are trying to purify their religion and force other Muslims back to the 7th century and a moderate majority who want some of the same things we do, uh, you know, jobs, education for their children, health care, uh, you know, sense of dignity. And what polls show is that, that those people are not irrevocably anti-Western or anti-American. Uh, there are those things where we have common values. And I think the, our job is to win the hearts and minds of those moderates to prevent them being recruited by those extremists. And, and you believe that hearts and minds can be one and that the ultimate meaning of soft power is that you go at uh, cultivating better connections between <clears throat> uh, your own state and other states who's, um, who are originally hostile or at least indifferent to you and try to get them 
to put it all too simply, on your side. Well, I think that's right. I mean, if you if you think of the so-called war on terror, there are two parts to it. One are the are the hardcore terrorists, the Bin Ladens and so forth. There's no way you can attract them. Soft power is your ability to attract people. You can't attract Bin Laden. You have to use hard power against him. Uh, but when it comes to the people that Bin Laden is trying to recruit, you've got to use attraction. You've got to attract them away so that he can't recruit them, or he, or Zarqawi, or Zawahiri, or any of them. Or the Islamicist fanatics generally. Right. And so, so the, 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 in essentially, you struggle against terrorism with a combination of hard power and soft power. Hard so. power for the hardcore, soft power for the moderates. Then we reach the point where it is time, after some impending commercials to examine just what you mean by soft power and what right. are the techniques for developing and for utilizing soft power to national advantage. Okay. We continue with Joseph Nye, author of the book Soft Power and former dean of the Kennedy School of Government at Harvard, directly after these words. And we return to Joseph Nye, former dean of the Kennedy School of Government at Harvard. Presently, you're two kinds of chaired professor, I've got there, are you? That's, I do have two titles. That's what happens when you just hang around long enough. Um, and we're drawing from uh, your book of a few years ago, published, what, about three years oh, ago? Oh, last uh, night, uh, 2004. Yeah. So only last year, year then. Soft Power, uh, The Means to Success in World Politics. That is, by the way, published by Public Affairs Books. Let's come directly to it. What do you mean by soft power, then? Well, if power is the ability to influence others to get what you want, you can do it three ways. You can threaten people with mm -hmm. uh, coercion, that sticks. You can induce them with payments, that's carrots. Or you can attract them to want the same things you want, and that's soft power. And if I can get you to want what I want, uh, I can get what I want without having to spend too much on carrots or sticks. Scare them, bribe them, and or court them. Court them, yeah, or seduce them. <laughs> seduce them. All right, how do you seduce powers or or publics that are hostile to your purposes and to your national tradition, and uh, might provide a good deal of fodder when it comes to, for those who are trying to recruit and uh, turn people into terrorists. Well, if, if let me give you a historical example. During the Cold War, we were very successful in using soft power. Uh, you know, we basically uh, uh, attracted people in exchange programs who picked up American mm -hmm. values when they were here. We uh, sent uh, various uh, groups, cultural groups, to uh, the Soviet Union. Uh, we sent movies. Hollywood uh, had played a large part of this. Uh, by the time the Berlin Wall came down, it didn't come down on a barrage or artillery. It came down under hammers and bulldozers uh, because we'd eaten away communism behind the Iron Curtain. Did the Soviet Union in that contest also use soft power? They tried. They certainly, I mean, communism was attractive to people in Europe mm -hmm. in the period immediately after World War II. They sent cultural delegations They sent cultural delegations, Berlin, they? but they stepped on their own message by invading Hungary and, and then uh -huh. invading Czechoslovakia, and they lost their soft power. They had a lot more soft power in the 1940s than they had, let's say, by the 1980s. They had potential ideological converts. They had a lot but of they people. they squandered that yeah. potential. And they squandered it, yeah. yeah. What's our potential at the moment? Well, I think the United States still has a attraction to other people. There are parts of our culture that are very attractive people around the world. And there are American values, democracy and human rights and liberty, which are attractive to people, and particularly when we live up to them and are not hypocritical. 
Uh, and when our policies are seen as broad-based and engaging the interests of others, and thereby legitimate, that's attractive as well. I think in the last uh, four years, we've uh, we've seen policies which have antagonized others, which have been seen as illegitimate. Uh, but I still think there's an attraction to American culture. Now, I think you've got that view of the Iraq action. But apart from Iraq, what else do you have in mind? Policies that have... Uh, that have been viewed negatively, that have antagonized well, when the, when our the, potential friends. When the Bush administration came in, uh, it took a number of actions which were uh, almost deliberately to stick your finger in somebody else's eye. Mm -hmm. um, we said that the comprehensive test ban treaty would, be, uh, would not be ratified. We said that uh, the Kyoto climate change uh, uh, protocol, uh, we called it dead and didn't offer to negotiate on the International Criminal Court, we said we would not only not respect it, but we would try to prevent other countries from joining it. There are a series of things which, uh, which we were assertively unilateralist about. I think the attitude was to uh, employ uh, the American jargon, no more Mr. Nice Guy. That's we, right, or, or the other way of thinking about it is uh, Gulliver. We, you know, there were people who saw the United States as uh, yeah. a giant who had been uh, like Gulliver tied down by a bunch of pygmies or Lilliputians, and we were going to assert ourselves. So if you take somebody like Charles Krauthammer, who writes for the Post, mm -hmm. uh, Washington Post, uh, he coined the phrase in June of, uh, 60, of 2001, well before 9-11, saying uh, we need a new unilateralism. And that new unilateralism was expensive in terms of how others regarded us. Much of this was in reaction, don't you think, to the great event of 9-11? Well, it was. I mean, 9-11 uh, poured fuel on this fire, but what I was just suggesting is that some of this antedated 9-11. Well, what were its sources? Uh, one can always ask of academic intellectuals who also have connections with government, what ideas pushed by or organized by what particular figures uh, made the difference. We're told that neoconservatism is the regnant ideology out of which these changes in policy came. Is that true? Well, the neoconservatives uh, either are given too much credit or too much blame, depending on your point of view. I think the strongest strand in the Bush administration coalition was the, what I would call the assertive nationalists who were represented by Cheney and Rumsfeld. And their feeling is that the United States had been too weak, that we hadn't asserted ourselves strongly enough. But do they have any professors behind them, so to speak? Uh, they do. There are some uh, some people who, who represented that. And they, they also got a, uh, a good deal of uh, intellectual uh, strength from uh, an alliance with the neoconservatives, who, with uh, magazines like the Weekly Standard mm -hmm. and columnists like Krauthammer and others, uh, uh, articulate people like uh, uh, Bill Kristol and Bob Kagan and so forth. But I have in mind yet another um, kind of academic who really has mm -hmm. considerable role in all of this, the, the people who call themselves the realist theorists. Uh, for example, our own John Mearsheimer at the University mm -hmm. of Chicago, though John, to be sure, disapproved of the Iraq invasion. Well, the interesting thing is that the realists, um, while well, they take a... Uh, a hard-nosed view of international politics uh, and scorn the idealists um, were only a minor strand in the Bush administration. If you look at the Bush administration, particularly the first term, you had three strands. One was the realists in the tradition of 
Kissinger and Scowcroft and so forth. And they, they were represented by Colin Powell. The second strand was the neoconservatives, who I suppose would be represented by Paul Wolfowitz. And the third was the assertive nationalists, the people who wanted to make a powerful Machiavellian statement, to go back to your earlier comment, um, and then get out. And those were uh, probably best represented by uh, Rumsfeld and Cheney. There's a local angle to all of this, as you well know, that is a good, a good portion of the, the kind of thinking that has led to the realist stance and to the tough stance in foreign policy comes from the campus of the University of Chicago, historically. I have in mind particularly Strauss and the Straussians who followed upon their mentor, and I have in mind, of course, Hans Morgenthau. Well, Hans Morgenthau was the giant of the realists. Um, in some ways, uh, again, the, the attribution here is a little bit fuzzy, but Strauss is often cited more as the leader of the neocons rather mm -hmm. than, or not the leader of, but as an inspiration for. Uh, Hans Morgenthau, more of the inspiration for the realists. And the interesting thing here is that is the split between the two. Uh, I mean, John Mearsheimer, you mentioned at Chicago now, a very distinguished uh, political scientist, was against the Iraq War. Yes, he and, was. And bitterly against the neocons. Who, he called them uh, people who were idealists in the traditional And he Woodrow joined Wilson. with a former colleague of his now on your faculty, namely Steve Walt, to organize a big protest against, from the ranks of the academically based realists no, that's, uh, yeah. against the Iraq invasion. Yeah, no, it's, it, it's very interesting. Brent Scowcroft, who is uh, uh, one of the leaders of the realist thinking, he was the national security advisor for Bush 41, uh, was quoted in, the, in a recent New Yorker article being highly critical of the uh, Bush 43 administration. And he has argued that the real division in uh, American foreign policy now is between the the realists or the traditionalists and what he calls the transformationalists, the people who want to, who think you can only save the United States by transforming the Middle East, by democratizing it. And in a sense, that's a new variant of the old realism versus idealism, except that this new bunch are not full Wilsonians in the Wilson tradition, because Woodrow Wilson also had international institutions as part of his mix. And this bunch want to do it themselves. Well, the question is whether, in fact, their plan might yet work. It's the whole process is in mid-course. That is, the Iraq issue is still unfolding. There are signs, as the president recounted them only, was it yesterday or the day before in Philadelphia, there are signs of very considerable achievement toward establishing, if not, quote, full democracy, establishing a legitimized government in Iraq far more humane and far more uh, serviceable for human needs in Iraq than was the dreadful regime of Saddam Hussein. And there are signs that what has happened in Iraq has produced reverberations elsewhere in the Middle Eastern world, certainly in Lebanon, uh, even in Libya of all places. And Syria is pretty um, uh, fragile at the moment, worried about what action might come from the United States. And there looms uh, uh, at the easternmost end of that arc of the Middle East, there looms Iran, uh, which we thought might be heading towards democracy until recent elections and the emergence of a new despot, or is he merely uh, an ambulatory psychotic? Uh, but things are changing in the Middle East, and they are changing inevitably in consequence of the Iraq action. That is 
I think, a position that has to be responded to, at least, by advocates of soft power who are critical of what uh, we undertook in Iraq. And I look, of course, uh, to you to respond right after we pause for this. And let's get back to Iraq and the alternative view of something good that was set in motion by the Iraq uh, action, even though at the moment it's, um, uh, it's tense. And we've got not yet a fully satisfying conclusion. But we've got the election coming in a few days and uh, the establishment of a permanent government with a four-year lease. And terrorism, they've been able to withstand it, even though it's been horrific in the number of lives it has taken. One has every reason to believe they will still be able to withstand it. And the establishment of that new kind of government in Iraq is bound to have consequences. It's going to make waves, and there should be good waves. That's the general loose argument, at least, that you do get from the well, conservatives. You know, nobody can give a definitive uh, judgment on something that you're living through until quite some time after the mm -hmm. event, so probably take us 10 years. You know this famous quip that uh, when uh, Henry Kissinger first met Joe and Lye in the 70s, and he said, what do you think of the French Revolution? And Joe and Lye said, it's too soon to tell. Yes. Uh, well, you know, it's certainly uh, much too soon for us to make a definitive mm -hmm. judgment on how the ultimate effects of Bush's invasion of Iraq. But with that said, uh, on the plus side of the ledger, uh, you have had or will have had this week three elections in Iraq. Uh, you will have had some spillover effect on Lebanon. Whether Libya would have changed uh, anyway or uh, still uncertain, you know, the Egyptian elections uh, were certainly not uh, very free. So it's it's a little bit mm -hmm. unclear. Some, I mean, there would have been some democratization in the Middle East regardless of the invasion of Iraq, but certainly the invasion of Iraq speeded things up or shook them up. Now, what we don't know is, is what the effect of it's going to be because we don't know what's going to happen in Iraq. Three elections doesn't make a democracy. What we've done is we've replaced the tyranny of the minority, the Saddam Sunnis, 20% of the population, mm -hmm. with the tyranny of the majority, the 60% uh, Shia Along population. those lines, by the way, is it reasonable to consider the possibility that they themselves will decide to devolve as a nation and to establish three nations, the Sunni nation, the Shia nation, and Kurdistan. That may happen. It may also happen in the process of a civil war. And, uh, you know, some people would argue what's happening now is an incipient civil war mm -hmm. and that this could get worse. Let's hope not. Uh, there's also the danger of, uh, uh, even though the insurgency is largely a Sunni insurgency within four provinces, uh, uh, the number of insurgents has actually increased from official American estimates in 2003 to 2005. It's doubled. That's not a sign of progress. Well, we are beginning to do a tour of the horizon uh, because that leads you inevitably next door to Syria, mm -hmm. which is letting those insurgents and those terrorists through. Uh, you worried about things like that when you helped to run intelligence for this country and when you uh, were Assistant Secretary of Defense. If you were in there right now, what would you advocate uh, we do about or to Syria? Well, Syria is a hard case. You have a, uh, Bashar Assad is a, uh, turns out to be a far weaker leader than we had hoped. He's a damn good ophthalmologist. Though. Well, a good ophthalmologist probably sort of stuck with it. But, uh, <laughs> you know, with the, the hope when he came back uh, was that uh, he was going to liberalize and mm -hmm. uh, in fact, he seems to have been captured by a group of his father's cronies and uh, who've resisted any uh, serious liberalization. Um, I guess the, the question we have to ask is, uh, 
if Bashar uh, goes, is he replaced by uh, the people who limited him, or does it open the door to some sort of an Islamist uh, rising, which would not be in our interest? Well, let's reason or examine that one through. What's the more likely outcome? Uh, does one begin with the assumption that he is going? Well, I, I, I don't know. I mean, it's uh, he's resisted it uh, successfully so far, but he's he's not in strong position. Are we, in fact, using our own power, soft or hard, to persuade the remnant of the Syrian elite to dis to dump him? Well, certainly after the assassination of the Lebanese uh, former prime minister yeah. Hariri, uh, we working together in this case with the French in the United Nations. Uh, launched a major international campaign to uh, expose uh, the Syrian role in Lebanon, and that has been a campaign which has, happened, uh, has helped to weaken uh, uh, Bashar Assad at home. And also got Syria fully and truly out of Lebanon. For well, the first time. it's gotten on superficially out of Lebanon. They're still working behind the scenes. and Their and intelligence the, service and so The on. intelligence, and there was an assassination of yes. a journalist last week, Quite which right. was probably Syrian... Uh, uh, directed, uh, so I think it's it's uh, uh, the Syrians are still have their hand in the Lebanese pie. An interesting thing. I'm just free associating, but if, if you'll permit this, uh, focusing on Lebanon for a minute, can Iraq get together with those three quite different religious communities? Lebanon was, in a way, a pearl of democracy for a number of years after the end of World War II, where you had a mixture of even a larger number of religious communities. I think. Sorry, Lebanon was it tra in traditional pluralism was quite a success, yeah. but it was destabilized by a couple of things. Externally, it was the Palestinian issue, which essentially the spillover of the Palestinians into Lebanon, which was a uh, disruptive uh, uh, incursion. That was when Jordan kicked the PLO out of Jordan and right. they came into Lebanon. And the other thing, though, was the was demographics, the rise of the Lebanese Shia in the south. Uh, which is the base for Hezbollah. And though they are Lebanese Shia, they are also agents of the government of Iran, are they not? Very closely allied in many cases. Yeah. Yeah. It's a complex place, the Middle East. It certainly is, and the idea that we're going to go in and transform it uh, coercively is a little bit of an illusion. Well, it's all, it is also the intention of the guys on the other side, the uh, Islamicist extremists, to transform Oh, absolutely! Yeah, no, they, they have want to really restore uh, Islam in it, what they take to be its classic form. Well, they have a, a narrative and a view, which is uh, that they will restore the dignity of the Muslim world by uh, going back to the purity of seventh-century yeah. Islam. And anybody who doesn't agree with them, they're going to force them to go. And politics is reduced to Sharia. Yeah, it's Sharia, but it's even, uh, I mean, for the Salafists, it's a uh, its an even more primitive version uh, of what they want. Uh, the French um, sociologist uh, Olivier Roy, who has studied uh, uh, Islam, written a book on globalized Islam, says, you know, a lot of these people uh, are not fundamentalists. They have a uh, their own view. It's not what the Quran says. It's what they want to believe is a pure version of the religion. It's, it, it, he calls it uh, politics wrapped in religion. That's probably true of all nativistic religious movements. I think that's probably right. Yeah. Martin Marty and a number of colleagues did a uh, five-volume study on fundamentalism 
in the world today. The, the work was just yeah. completed about five years ago. And they find that sort of political uh, recidivism, in a way, represented by all of the nativist fundamentalist movements, whether even in Hinduism and in Islam and in Christianity and in Judaism and, no, I think <laughs> and that's, in a few I, other such I think that's available correct. religions. Yeah. No, and, and what we're facing is, is a, I'm afraid, a generation-long struggle. I mean, this is not something which you capture a couple of people and it's over. What are the chances that the Islamists might win? I doubt that they will win in the sense of dominating or controlling the minds of all Muslims. For example, we, we often extrapolate from uh, the Arab world to uh, the Islamic world, but you've got to remember the Arabs are a minority, a small minority of the Muslim world. I mean, Indonesian Islam is very different, um, and uh, Indonesia is the largest Islamic country. And uh, one of the largest Islamic communities, or Muslim communities, is, is uh, in India, and uh, living within a democracy. There are very few terrorists among Indian Muslims. So we have to be careful not to think of uh, you know, one view prevailing across uh, a you know, archipelago from Morocco to Indonesia with 1.2 billion people. And you would agree, I know, that a crucial linchpin nation in uh the Islamic world these days is one that uh, stands right next to India and indeed is in some continuing antagonistic relationship with India. Pakistan. Now, Pakistan is a real dilemma for us because the, uh, uh, the Pakistanis are uh, sometimes people say that the danger is becoming a failed state with uh, loose nuclear weapons. And that's, a, that's a particularly frightening prospect. Which brings us interestingly to another book of yours done recently. Uh, you are one of those fairly rare figures there in this country, but perhaps more common in some of the European uh, national traditions, uh, a scholar and also an active government official who handles some of his, who conveys some of his insights, not only in formal books like uh, Soft Power, but in fiction. And mm -hmm. you've done a novel titled The Power Game, subtitle A Washington Novel, uh, in which, among other things, uh, we undertake to bomb a nuclear plant, not in Iran, but rather in Pakistan. Yeah, that uh, it's interesting. That plot uh, developed in my mind about 15 years ago when I said when I knew that the Pakistanis were developing their own nuclear weapons, and I thought, what would happen if we discovered that they were transferring them? And so I invented this plot that we discovered that Pakistan's about to send nuclear weapons to Iran. The CIA develops a, uh, a uh, plan to, uh, to uh, essentially to blow it up before it can happen. And different friends in the White House, the Pentagon, and, and the State Department disagree about whether it's moral or not. So I was interested in not only in the thriller part of it, but what is struggling for power in Washington due to your friendships, which is why I call it the power game. Uh, but the thing that was really intriguing was that as the... 90s worked on and I hadn't published this, I said, you know, if I don't get this out soon, it's not going to be fiction any longer. And when we learned about A.Q. Khan, the Pakistani scientist who'd been creating these networks to transfer nuclear secrets, I began to think that my, my fiction was becoming fact. There's a, a major ambiguity in all of that. Was A.Q. Khan doing it just as a kind of a private mafia operation, or was he in fact doing it uh, in connivance with and perhaps 
uh, even uh, under the orders of the Pakistani government, or at least their special intelligence service, which has been quite pro-Islamist, has it not? Yeah, it's very hard to think that A.Q. Khan could have done this without the knowledge of the army. Uh, and the army, of course, became the government, and the ISI, the intelligence branch of the army, only certainly would have known. So when we complained about this, of course, General Musharraf uh, put Aikyu Khan under house arrest, which is like tapping him lightly on mm -hmm. the wrist. So much depends also upon, sometimes upon individual people. Assassinations happen when history can be changed by killing mm -hmm. some crucially placed person. There have now been seven or eight attempts on the life of General Musharraf. Well, Musharraf is, a, is an intriguing figure. I mean, he's, he's trying to balance or walk a tightrope between keeping the Americans happy and uh, keeping the uh, army happy and keeping the traditionalists, uh, the Muslim uh, 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 traditionalists happy and the Islamists happy. That's a tough job. Can to be done. Well, so far he's managed to to do it. I, I've sometimes asked some friends of mine in India, who follow Pakistan very closely for obvious reasons, what would happen if Musharraf, if one of these attempts, he's killed, and their view is that you'd get another Sunni general uh, like uh, Musharraf who would take over, and they don't think the Islamists would take over. But if you imagine a coup that was deeper in the military ranks in which a group of Islamists were to take over and uh, get hold of Pakistani nuclear weapons, the plot of my novel becomes more realistic than ever. Let me bring you back to that other nation in the Middle East which differentiates from all the rest and is, um, though it's now got diplomatic relations with two or three of them, is still essentially viewed as the enemy. And that, of course, is Israel. Hmm. Uh, and it's clear that the, a good part of the hostility towards the United States in the Arab Islamic, the Arab portion of the Islamic world, uh, and perhaps even in the Malaysian portion, uh, since the former president of Malaysia denounced Israel and denounced Jews as a worldwide conspiracy in a famous Islamic conference only about a year ago. Uh, Israel is the bone in the throat, apparently, and uh, I don't know that unless that is resolved, that hostility toward hostility based in that anti-Israeli sentiment will ever disappear. And I don't think that, and I wonder whether true settlement between Israel and the PLO or the Palestinian Authority is ever really going to be possible when Abbas is surrounded by uh, nationalists who are still anti-Israeli and who are militias still ready to kill Israelis and wanting to disrupt yet once again any possible movement towards settlement. Well, the, the tragedy in the Arab Israeli dispute is that the extremists always disrupt the center, yeah. and uh, it's very hard to make sustainable progress. I mean, Israel's become a uh, a scapegoat. I mean, for avoiding a real positive adaptive change in in many Arab societies. On the other hand, inside Israel, uh, the view of Arab unrelenting Arab hostility uh, is an excuse for not changing in Israel, and it's it's sad. I mean. I think in in uh, um, I think in some ways that you can't solve this. It's not something you resolve immediately. But I thought Bill Clinton actually did a pretty good job on it. He once said that uh, um, you have to give the Israelis a guarantee of security. Otherwise, if you had your back to the sea and somebody say you're going to push you into the sea, you wouldn't compromise either. 
But having given them a guarantee of security, then you have to press them to come to terms. How can we, in fact, give Israel a guarantee of security? Well, I pretty much by making it clear that we're not going to let Israel be destroyed. And I think the Americans have done that. But the next step is to then say to the Israelis, you have to then come to terms with the Palestinians because the Palestinians you're dealing with now are not as bad as the Palestinians you're going to get in the future. Try a worst case analysis and tell me how this might play out. It's a scenario. <clears throat> the ultimate destructive move against Israel comes not from the Palestinians, but from Iran, because they do develop a nuclear weapon. They've already got missiles which can reach Israel. Two or three well-placed nuclear missiles uh, over Tel Aviv and Haifa and Jerusalem, and that nation is totally destroyed. Well, that's uh, why I what think... What would we yeah. do if, if that happened? Well, I, that's why I think time is not on Israel's side. Actually, I think it's less likely that it's going to come from a missile launched from Iran, uh, because, after all, Israel can deter by threatening to reply in kind. I think more likely is the uh, prospect of a, a missile, uh, not a missile, of nuclear materials being smuggled out through some clandestine network from a security or an intelligence service in Iran or Pakistan to a fanatic a terrorist group who wants to, uh, who are suicidal in intent mm -hmm. and who want Israel to uh, to be torn down. And I, the ignition then of a dirty bomb on Ben Yehuda Street in, in Tel Aviv. Yeah, that worries me far more than the, than the Iranian missile. What do we do on, under those circumstances? Well, we've got, I mean, I think the key on this is to get the uh, uh, the Israeli government to work with the current Palestinians, such as they are, and to try to develop a framework which uh, uh, draws some of the sting out of this. You can never completely uh, get out of this problem, but I think right now, for example, when uh, Sharon has withdrawn from Gaza, that's a good step. But his view that he can do this unilaterally, put the wall wherever he wants, and impose his borders on the Palestinians, he can probably put the wall where he wants, but he's not going to get the acceptance of the wall on the other side, which means that it's not stable in the long run. You see the connection, the parallel, though it's hardly an identity, between the various Palestinian militias and the IRA. Whether the IRA can will mm -hmm. decommission, meaning, mm -hmm. right. in, in their current jargon, whether they'll put their weapons aside, uh, is the crucial question in getting a final settlement in Ireland. And is it conceivable that you can get Hamas, Hezbollah, and Islamic Jihad to, quote, decommission? Well, you can't until you get a change uh, uh, which makes the large majority of the Palestinian population like the large majority of the uh, Irish Catholic population, say that this movement has gone too far. We're so not going to tolerate it. One would hope that soft power might do its work. That would help. Yeah. What would be a soft power campaign or approach or undertaking directed at the Palestinian uh, man in the streets? So well, I think the, the I think elections in Palestine, yeah, improving the government, uh, helping, for example, to build the economy as we are trying to do. Mm -hmm. Uh, showing that we stand for opportunities for Palestinians. Uh, these are things which might produce the attraction that uh, would help uh, Abbas and others to create a democratic uh, Palestinian authority. And if, and, but that's going to take help from the Israelis as well. I mean, the idea that they're not 
helping Abbas, not negotiating, I mean, trying to do this unilaterally, means they're not developing a, a interlocutor on the other side of the wall who is uh, going to be helping them. And so the Israelis need to use their soft power. Are they They're considering not. doing so? Well, that mean, well, who knows? We'll see what happens after the next elections. But uh, thus far, there has not been uh, enough effort by Sharon and his government to reach out to Abbas and to uh, try to develop an interlocutor that's uh, uh, attractive on the other side. They've got Netanyahu on the right, who wants to pursue a continuing hard line, and on the left, they've got a sizable Israeli, quote, peace movement, which says, give it all back to the Arabs. Well, not quite give it all back to the Arabs. I think uh, Peretz, who is the, not Perez, but Peretz, yeah. the Head new of the leader party. of the later party, is uh, uh, basically going to run primarily on economic issues, if he can. There's much more to be said. This is fascinating material, uh, but we are overdue for some commercials. Uh, they are coming, and then a quick uh, update on the news, and then we return to Joseph Nye, author of Soft Power and of the novel The Power Game, a Washington novel. First, these words. And, again, our phone lines are now open, 591-7200, and also, of course, email is available for any who are listening on the Internet at some greater distance. If you're listening in the Middle East uh, and want to get in touch, we invite you to send us an email the email address extension 720 at tribune.com extension 720 at tribune t-r-i-b-u-n-e dot com or 591-7200 um, before we go to the phones and we'll do that as i say in about 15 minutes at the most we're doing a tour of the horizon but all of it has been essentially in the middle east where else might we profitably use soft power in the world these days well, one of the big questions we're going to face in American foreign policy is the rise of Asia. And uh, if you look at... Uh, the other one that Sam Huntington worries about. That's right. And if you look at China and India, uh, one would look forward, uh, well, I'd say, to the middle of the century and see them as, as you know, major powers, uh, particularly economic powers. Uh, it's important for us to attract them, in other words, to... to uh, uh, find, to make ourselves attractive to them. A lot of people in Asia now are talking about the rise of Chinese soft power. Uh, the Chinese now use the term, interestingly enough. Uh, Chinese former um, Deputy Prime Minister Chen Chi-Chen gave a speech about uh, soft power. And uh, the Chinese feel that if they can attract others uh, in the region, they can avoid having a balance of power against them. And... Um, the uh, current, I mean, this week, there's a conference in East Asia, an East Asian summit, which doesn't involve the U.S., which thereby profits uh, some of the other countries more. So one of the things we're going to need to do is to maintain an attraction in Asia as Asia becomes more self-confident and uh, more economically dynamic. You suggested earlier that we have given... Um, guarantees to Israel and we will stand by that <clears throat> and protect them from any assault uh, which attempts to undermine uh, their nationhood. What about Taiwan? We've given such guarantees to Taiwan as well. Would we stand by those? Well, we haven't given them quite the same sense. What we've said to the Taiwanese is that uh, we will not accept Taiwan becoming or declaring itself to be independent 
and we will not accept China using force. Uh, and within that framework of no independence, no use of force, we want Taiwan and the mainland to bargain about what their relations oh, will be. And we're kind of inviting them to do a Hong Kong sort of settlement. Yeah, it, but on their terms. No, yeah. there's not one that's coerced. And the, uh, I think that's actually a workable solution. In this case, I think the Bush administration's done a pretty good job. Uh, the danger is that the Taiwanese say, well, the Americans have given us a blank check they'll guarantee us no matter what we do, then they'll declare independence. If they do, the Chinese will use force, and then we're caught up in a, a battle or a war not of our own choosing. When it comes to uh, troubled or tense or friendly relations between ourselves and other countries or blocks of countries, there's one very important block that we've not really mentioned at all yet tonight, and that's Europe, mm -hmm. um, which uh, increasingly wants to differentiate itself from America and, uh, in essence, um, reduce American power. Well, there are Europeans who were anti-American. They were always have been. Yeah. And the attraction of the United States has gone down considerably after the Iraq War. But by and large, there still is a base for American soft power in Europe. And uh, the idea that Europe will become a rival power, uh, which sometimes uh, French President Chirac has talked about, is really not in the cards. Um, in addition to that, the Europeans face a, uh, some of the same threats we do from terrorism. And we and the Europeans probably share more values of democracy and human rights than any other two parts of the world. So I think you can over-dramatize the uh, difference between the US and Europe. I mean, it's, it, it, it's a fight in the family, but it's not a divorce. Well, the French have a peculiar sense of, of their continuing grandeur and their continuing significance. It was, wasn't it de Gaulle who announced that they had uh, um, mission civilisatrice for the world? That's right. In some it ways, was, the mission was to civilize the world. Yeah, that's right. The French, uh, if they had the power of the Americans, they'd be very much like the Americans. They, <laughs> we tend to be very universalistic in our yeah. culture, and so do they. The other interesting new development in Europe, which Europe is beginning to realize and worry about, is, and this returns us to the way to the theme we've spent so much time with tonight, uh, is the coming on of Islam, coming on in European cities, a demographic shift in Europe so that Italy, it is now predicted, will, for example, by the year 2050, quite possibly have an Islamic majority. It's possible. I, I think, not likely, but I think that there is a real problem, even if it's not a majority, of doing a better job of assimilating um, the Muslim immigrants. And As we've seen in France only yeah, within right. recent months. That's true uh, uh, basically in almost all uh, European countries. One of the interesting things, we see what happens to Turkey and uh, whether Turkey joins the European Union. Uh, the reason that's interesting is here's a Muslim country which has gone further than any other in terms of modernization and secularism combining Islam with a, a modern secular state, and which wants to join Europe. In some sense, uh, it's an interesting illustration of Europe's soft power that has been able to attract the Turks and uh, to get them to change their human rights law and other domestic laws uh, because of attraction they want to join. Even though a few years ago they did temporarily at least elect what was essentially an Islamicist government. Well, it's, a, it's, it's uh, the... Uh, the Prime Minister uh, uh, Erdogan 
uh, is a representative of a Islamist party, but it's not Islamist in the sense that we think about it in other parts of the Middle East. They're actually, they've been pretty moderate. We've talked about all of this without really using the word economics at all, without talking about mm -hmm. um, uh, the way in which the world is changing economically and integrating economically. Uh, is globalization relevant to all that we've discussed so far? Oh, absolutely. And uh, globalization obviously has an economic component of uh, uh, economic integration at uh, great distances. It also, though, has a ecological component what happens with global climate change or the spread of pandemics. And it has a military component, as we saw with transnational terrorism. So globalization and the speed up of globalization is very much a factor in, in the world we face today. Where will globalization lead us ultimately? Do you remember the great lines of Tennyson in Locksley Hall, where he looks forward, here the quote, if I have it correct in memory, looks forward to the time when the war drums no longer and the battle flags are furled in the parliament of man, the federation of the world. That's right. It's a noble sentiment for the, uh, for the 19th century. I don't think it's about to happen. Um, the UN is no parliament of the world. Um, but it was a noble sentiment that even animated those who, many of those who originally shaped the UN, don't you think? Oh, I think that was definitely the ideal. But I think we have realized that uh, there are too many differences in uh, senses of community, too many differences of national groups uh, to really think of a world government. What we can do, though, is find ways where governments can cooperate and deal with transnational issues such as climate change or pandemics or terrorism, which no government can deal with itself. I mean, I, I once wrote another book called The Paradox of American Power, and the paradox of American Power is that the strongest country the world has seen since the days of Rome can't defend its citizens acting alone. A lot of these things we can't do without the help of others. Yeah. Is this where you developed that wonderful analogy to three-dimensional chess? That's right. That on the top board uh, of this three-dimensional game, the military board, we're in full control. And the middle economic board, there's already a balance of power. And on the bottom transnational board, power is chaotically organized. And if you want to deal with that bottom board, which is where some of our major threats are coming from, you've got to get the help of other people. Does history just happen beyond our control, or does the course of events really permit the shaping of the future? Well, it's both. I mean, if the, if the United States is the largest country in the world, has more chance to shape external events than in any other country, but it's also true that uh, uh, there are some forces which are very hard to shape. I mean, globalization and technological change being some, uh, religious and ideological changes being others. You know, there is a, there's this great phrase of Marx's that man makes history, but not under conditions of his own choosing. And so obviously we tried to shape this, um, but uh, some of these forces are pretty hard to shape. Then we are in some degree still um, play things for the gods? Uh, I think that's always going to be the human condition. So live with it. Well, yes, uh, and the fact is that uh, we have not much choice. Not very long ago, even in the universities, and probably even at the Defense Department and at the CIA and in comparable institutions 
elsewhere in the world, there was a very real apprehension that it all might go up in nuclear conf conflagration, that we might stumble into what Herman Kahn labeled a wargasm, mm -hmm. and it would all be over. Or what would be left? Who was it? Who, uh, was it Winston Churchill who looked forward to um, making the rubble? What you'll be left with is a world in which you can make the rubble bounce. Yeah, that's in, uh, in Arnold Toynbee once said that the split atom and the nation state can't coexist. There you are. Um, are we over that degree of anxious depression or depressive anxiety well, we concerning have a, our future? We have a different dimension of it. The idea that we'll blow ourselves up in a nuclear spasm, which was a plausible scenario in the Cold War, it was indeed. is now gone, and that's a blessing. I mean, it's highly unlikely that we and the, so the Russians would uh, destroy each other in 30 minutes. But we faced a new threat uh, from nuclear weapons, which is that they could be smuggled into an American city. Mm -hmm. So in some ways, the prospects of the probability of, of a major nuclear cataclysm, a nuclear winter, as it was once called, uh, that probability has gone down. The probability that some nuclear weapon might go off in an American city may have gone up. Which leads to another very important public issue. We've just had a report from the 9-11 Commission as it closed, officially closed down, saying, you haven't taken our recommendation seriously. You're not doing enough to control against just those possibilities of nuclear terrorism and uh, biological terrorism on American streets. That's right. And if you look at the report of that commission and look at the number of A's, I think there were maybe one or two, and the number of F's, there were probably half a dozen, and many of the grades were on the lower end of the scale. And you've looked at it, and you agree with their overall evaluation. I am afraid they're right. I mean, we we have uh, we've diverted too much of our attention into this Iraq uh, imbroglio, uh, attention which w should have been focused on our major threat, which was from terrorism. By the way, uh, and before we go through some commercials and then to the phones, and I'll say again that the lines open. Some lines are taken. A few are still available. Five nine one seven two double zero. A last question for me before I turn you over to the tender mercies of our listeners and our emailers. Quite simply, what realistically from this moment on would you favor as actionable policy for us in Iraq? Well, I think uh, we should be trying to uh, wind down a major military presence over the next 18 months. Uh, the problem is we're we're in a dilemma. Uh, our continued presence there acts as a red flag. It helps recruitment. Uh, as Zawahiri told uh, uh, Zarqawi last summer, this is the greatest recruiting device they've had. On the other hand, if we get out too quickly, uh, the new Iraqi government may not be able to defend itself. So I think what we've got to do is uh, is train them as best we can I tell them that uh, they're going to have to take over in something like a year and a half and uh, make it clear that we're not there as imperial occupiers for the long run. We're, we're going to give them a decent shot at protecting their own security, but we're not there for the long term. Do we give them some sort of guarantee that we'll keep uh, 50,000 based in Afghanistan or, and or Uzbekistan and get them in back at your service, if necessary? Well, there may be an over-horizon presence in the region. Uh, you could imagine some American troops even being in uh, Kurdistan, mm -hmm. um, uh, as well as in Kuwait. Uh, 
but uh, the actual policing and fighting of the insurgency, I don't think we can, I don't think we are able to do that over the long term. Well, I think what you've just said probably coordinates fairly well with what is virtually the announced intention of the present government. Well, except the official administration position is that uh, we don't stand down until they stand up. Yeah. And what I'm saying is we tell them, folks, we're standing down. You'd better start standing uh-huh. up. That is what we said to the South Vietnamese at one point. That's right. And, uh, uh, you know, it, the South Vietnamese lost. Uh, the Iraqis are going to have to take charge of their own fates. With that, a quick and necessary pause, and then right on to the phones and to the email. 591-7200, of course, is the phone number. At the moment, I think all the lines are taken. But if you're trying to reach us, continue to try, by all means because not everybody gets through and makes the cut, as they say. And, of course, when we finish with some caller, uh, then a line is available for a moment. So keep trying, 591-7200. If you'd rather reach us by email, that email address is extension720 at tribune.com. And I see that now one line is available yet again. We return directly after these words. With a quick reintroduction of our distinguished guest for the evening, Joseph Nye, was for a number of years until just about last year the dean of the Kennedy School of Government at Harvard University. He is the former chairman of the National Intelligence Council, which is a major uh, group within the National Security Council. And he was assistant secretary of defense for international security affairs during uh, a number of years of the Clinton administration. His most recent book, well, two most recent books are Soft Power, The Means to Success in World Politics. That's published by Public Affairs Books, and also with from the same publisher, his novel, The Power Game, a Washington novel. 591-7200 is the number, and we will go directly to the phones. Good evening. You're on the air. Good evening. Yes, sir. It's an honor to speak with your distinguished guest. Um, I just wanted to bring up a point you made about, um, which is the administration line, that the so-called Cedar Revolution in Lebanon was a direct result of what happened in Iraq and Everything I read about it was the people in the streets really taking their inspiration from what happened in the Ukraine earlier, the, the Orange Revolution, which that in turn was getting inspiration from what happened in Georgia prior to that. And, you know, listening to public radio and whatnot, hearing in, interview people on the streets, they were almost universally opposed to the invasion of Iraq. And, you know, I just think the administration is really making a big leap to, to say that was a result. That's what of, you get when you listen to public radio. <laughs> Well, I, I, I think you're correct that causation on these things is pretty complex. There's not a straight line from Iraq to the changes there. Uh, you know, what really triggered the change in Lebanon was the assassination of uh, Rafi mm-hmm. Hariri. And uh, you could imagine a response uh, to that without the Iraq mm-hmm. invasion. On the other hand, some Lebanese politicians like Wali Jumblat have said that the invasion of Lebanon did, in fact, uh, uh, have an effect on the psychology of some Lebanese. So I think it was probably uh, 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 a multiple causation, but it's certainly not a simple uh, point that uh, the invasion of Iraq produced the elections in Lebanon. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Thank you for taking the call. A useful question, indeed. Some lines are now at last available. If you've been trying to reach us, move quickly, and somebody will get through. 591 7200, the number, and you are next on the air. Good evening. 
Hello, Bill. Uh, I've got a, a question about um, the applicability of uh, some ideas of um, attitude uh, change from social psychology. I'm wondering, I'm wondering if they're applicable to uh, this issue your guest is talking about. Of course, you're the expert in this, but as you know, there's one idea is that people will shift their uh, attitudes to be consistent with their behavior if they can be induced to change their behavior. Yes, uh -huh. that's the, the that's the fast, the Festingerian uh, um, yes. salient in all of this. Uh, Leon Festinger's theory of cognitive dissonance: if you get people to behave in a counterattitudinal way, that is against what their real convictions are, they may very well re reorganize their convictions to be consistent with what they've done. Well, it's true. You know, attraction um, can be generated by uh, by changes in behavior. Sometimes, I mean, you have something like the Stockholm syndrome, in which the hostage is uh, initially hostile to the captor, but eventually uh, becomes identified with and is attracted to the captor. So, attraction is a, is a, a strange phenomenon, and uh, it's not just done by being nice. I mean, sometimes, ironically, uh, uh, you know, you can find something where the use of force can produce soft power, though it seems uh, 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 counterproductive. In fact, the resources uh, since nonetheless produce attraction. We thank you, sir, for the call. We were talking, you and I, during a, co a commercial break about a mutual friend of ours and a colleague of yours, mm -hmm. Herb Kelman, mm -hmm. uh, who is a social psychologist at Harvard, and years ago put together a book titled International Behavior. And he asked me to do one of the chapters, uh, and I did. Uh, it did better in Germany than in this country. In Germany, it uh, was taken up by a number of people, and some even argued with people in government that there was a great deal that could be applied from this. In Germany, it's Attitudenveränderung und Außenpolitik in der Ära des Kalkenkrieges. In English, that's attitude change and foreign policy in the era of the Cold War. But our interest then, writing such a chapter and writing a book as well around similar themes, was not only um, attitude change of masses through propaganda, but attitude change of counter-elites. Uh, uh, the focus was on the Cold War, and there was a great problem of altering the perceptions of the Kremlin uh, elite to understand what we were really about and what the future might really be if we if they lay down their paranoid suspicions. Well, it's, it's, uh, it's interesting how well that worked. I mean, if you look at the testimony of somebody like Georgi Saknazarov, who was a close advisor mm -hmm. to uh, Gorbachev in the days of Glasnost, uh, they said they suffered complete cognitive dissonance between yeah. what they were saying every day and uh, what they were seeing and doing. And uh, it's also interesting how powerful and important these exchange programs were. Somebody like uh, Alexander Yakovlev, who was another key advisor to Gorbachev, was an exchange student in the United States at Columbia University and was quite attracted to the American uh, theories of pluralism. Um, so I, I think the, you know, the ability to get uh, to bring other students and, and leaders here to the United States, uh, to have them exposed to our ideas, it, these can be very important sources of soft power. A crucial event was the visit uh, of uh, I guess it was before he was prime minister. Um, what's his name? The one who who ran Russia until Russia fell. R r ran the Soviet Union until the Soviet Union collapsed. Well, that was Gorbachev. Gorbachev, because yep. I'm blocking on Gorbachev's name. Uh, Gorbachev's visit to London. Mm -hmm. And Mrs. Thatcher's response, he's a man that we can do business right. with. 
right and and i think it, i think uh, in many ways if the the collapse of the soviet union probably happened 10 years sooner than it would otherwise have happened because of gorbachev yeah undoubtedly uh, we are overdue for some commercials we'll pause for those and then directly back to joseph nye and before we go back to the phones five nine one seven two double zero one or two lines available again uh, let me read you an email and get your response to it. I speak, of course, to Joseph Nye, who is our special guest tonight, the former dean of the Kennedy School of Government at Harvard University. This listener says, uh, It would seem that one of the major impediments to moderation in the Arab body politic is cultural blinders that Arab society imposes upon itself. I recall a recent study uh, which revealed that more English books are translated into Norwegian than are translated into Arabic in the entire Arab world. We can have the best of intentions and smartly use our soft power, but until those societies reform their own educational systems and welcome a cultural exchange, our best efforts will be ineffective. What says tonight's guest? Well, I think that's exactly right. If you look at the Arab Human Development Report, which was written by Arab authors uh, under the auspices of the UN Development Program, uh, it's quite scathing about uh, the cultural insularity. That was about three years ago, wasn't it? Well, yeah. they've been a series of them, but the first they've was three years ago, yeah. and there've been uh, two since then. Scathing in what sense? What well, it, uh, if you know, if you, if you look at how closed the region is in terms of its trade, in terms of its uh, exchange programs, in terms of these translations that uh, the email uh, listener uh, mentioned, uh, it's it's become extraordinarily isolated, and this is not healthy. I mean, if you, you really need, what we need to be doing is to help open up those societies. Uh, you don't do it by invading Iraq. You do it by more exchange programs, more contact between American civil society. Take, take the, worst, the worst present case. What do you do about opening up Iran? Well, Iran is, a, is an interesting uh, puzzle. I mean, there, uh, ironically, uh, it's probably one of the countries where we're uh, more popular with the populace than we are with the government. Uh, which is not true of countries like Egypt or Saudi Arabia. Um, the uh, you know it's, I, if you take American culture uh, for the mullahs who rule Iran, uh, they regard uh, you know us as the great Satan. Hollywood is the great Satan. But uh, for Iranian teenagers, there's nothing more they want than to have an American video to play in the privacy of their home. So uh, you know uh, they're. The, the hope would be if, uh, if over time uh, this trend continues, you'll get a gradual change in Iran. It looked like that might be occurring until this reaction which brought about uh, Ahmadinejad, the current president. Well, was that a true reaction from a majority of the electorate, or was that a finagled election? It was a finagled election, but it was also represented a class division. I mean, the, mm -hmm. I mean, the people who voted for him were people who were not uh, necessarily voting on pure Islamic principles, but who felt that the uh, the ruling mullahs had become corrupt, had been favoring their own clique, uh, and uh, Ahmadinejad essentially is running as a populist. And I think that was probably a secret of his success. What does he mean when he announces to the world that Israel should be eliminated, that you should take Israel and move it to Europe, and Europe should make room for those Jews, all of whom should clear out of uh, uh, the Middle East. Well, this is—is is he serious? Uh, I 
I mean, some people would say that this is rhetoric left over from the revolution. Yeah. Uh, but I find this very disturbing. I mean, I, uh, you know, the fact that that his mindset is some is such that he would be able to say things like that is very worrisome. And is he, in fact, have we now established, have your intelligence community friends in Washington established whether he was or was not one of the people who took the Americans hostage in Tehran so long ago? As far as I know, they've never been able to pin that down, that to ascertain. Mm -hmm. they do. I think the general consensus now is he probably wasn't. But, probably was not. But he was certainly, uh, uh, a friend if, if he is. wasn't there, he was sympathetic to that view. We return to the phones for your questions too, Joseph Nye. 591-7200 remains the number, and you are on the air. Good evening. Good evening, gentlemen. How are you tonight? Fine, sir. Go ahead. Hi. Uh, I've been listening to you for a while. I'm on my way up to Detroit in my semi, um, and I have two questions which I'd like to pose. Uh, although I have to admit I'm a little ignorant on some of the finer points of the Islamic picture and all the dynamics that are in play in the Middle East. Um, we know that in the uh, 40 years ago or so, Kennedy and Khrushchev had sort of secret diplomatic lines where they were able to allow each other to almost save face uh, and to reach you know, some amicable resolutions to what problems they faced then. Is there any chance that with the extraction of the United States from Iraq that we can allow them to take over, but as we go out the door, we tell them, either in private channels or publicly, that this is it. We, we do not expect any more Islamic extreme retaliation, no more 9-11 texts. If, if something like that should transpire after we have pulled out of the, out of the Middle East in this presence, um, there will be dire consequences. And, but but do, it, do it in a way that we allow them to save face, that we don't make it public. I don't know if you can I'm, – I'm curious if, in your opinion, you can reach those people that way. And um, my second question was if, for some reason – in the, the upcoming elections, if, if a slate is voted in that the Bush administration doesn't necessarily like, will they honor it, or will they find some way to almost say, well, we really don't like the way that one went, so we're going to stick around until you get it right. And um, and with that, I'll, uh, I'll hang up and I'll listen to your response. Thank you. Well, uh very uh, interesting questions and quite well phrased. Thank you, sir, for the call. Well, I think on this question of back-channel negotiations, um, there's been some reports in the press that we have spoken uh, through back-channels to some of the insurgents in Iraq, uh, particularly those who are more nationalistic and secular, who are really objecting to the American uh, presence as occupiers. But on the religious uh, extremists, uh, Zarqawi and uh, people like uh, bin Laden, uh, al-Zawahiri, I don't think there's much uh, to say. I don't think we have communicated with them, but I'm not sure that there's much to communicate. So uh, could, you, uh, could you talk to some of the people in the insurgency? Apparently, yes, but to the hardline uh, uh, fanatics, uh, I, I think probably not. Um, on the uh, 
remind me of the other question, Bill. If uh, we don't get the government we want. Oh, in, yeah, if we don't get what we want. In Baghdad. I, I, it would be very awkward for us uh, to stay in if uh, having preached democracy and you get a government elected that says, please leave. I think it would be very hard for us not to leave. Our thanks to that caller, and I hope he's driving his truck carefully. Uh, let me read you another email that's come in. It seems that we are often dealing with a perverse, this is with reference to the Middle East or with reference to the Islamic world, it seems that we are often dealing with a perverse and violent ideology rather than a traditional sovereign adversary. I can't imagine that making concessions to these lunatics would have any chance of success. Some of our traditional friends have been exposed as craven and venal, which makes the tradition of multilateral diplomacy seem delusional. I guess there he's making reference to the Germans and the French as much as anybody else. Uh, continuing, perhaps the policies of the current administration are what the current realities demand. I remain very optimistic. Well, I hope you're right, I mean, that uh, in, in your optimism. Um, on the, I, I think there's a great mistake, though, on the first problem, or a great danger in the first problem that you mentioned of uh, lumping all uh, Muslims together. Uh, some the, use, of them, the use of the word lunatics? Well, yeah, some of them, in, in my mind, uh, are, 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 are people who you really can't deal with. I suspect that the, the mindset of bin Laden uh, is one which would make it very hard for us to deal with them. Uh, but our job is not to convert bin Laden or to attract him. I don't think we can. It's to make sure that the vast majority are not attracted by him. In other words, it's a competition by, uh, between our soft power to attract the moderates and bin Laden's soft power. Those public opinion polls that you look at very closely, and which are being mm -hmm. done, I know, in the Middle East, don't they show that uh, there's a vast amount of attraction toward bin Laden these days in the many countries of the Middle East. Yeah, if you look at Jordan and Pakistan, which are both countries that are American allies and on the front line of our struggle against terrorism, polls show that more people support uh, bin Laden than George W. Bush. There That's you are. very worrisome for us. How did it get that way? Well, it, it, Was it uh, not that way before the Iraq invasion? It, it, there was concern about the Palestinian issue, concern about the uh, a feeling that the Americans uh, uh, didn't give the uh, the Arab world its uh, uh, the dignity and trust that it deserved, uh, but it wasn't as bad as it is after Iraq. I mean, Iraq was the was like pouring gasoline on the fire. But one remembers, say, the dancing in the streets in Ramallah uh, on 9/11. Oh yes, no, I mean there, there's there's when the the United States as the uh, superpowers, the giant, um, draws a certain degree of resentment, and that was true before Iraq. The big guy always is a recipient of that resentment. Isn't That's that right. Idea? I mean, if you're the big kid on the block, you're going to get a certain amount of resentment, a certain amount of envy, but uh, uh, there's also a certain amount of admiration, and uh, what the ratio is between them depends on whether you act as a bully or a friend. And we've been a little bit too much on the bully side and not enough on the friend. You've mentioned the neoconservative establishment. You mentioned some of their publications. Mm -hmm. How do they react to your view? Have they, for example, reviewed your book, Soft Power? Well, it uh, depends. Again, there's a wide range of people. I, I mean, some of them, like um, uh, Richard Pearl, I think, uh, would just uh, disdain it or not care about mm -hmm. it. Um, uh, was the book reviewed in the Weekly Standard? Uh, I don't think it was reviewed in the Weekly Standard, but somebody like um, 
uh, Bob Kagan, who writes regularly mm -hmm. for the Weekly Standard, I think sure. uh, would uh, uh, understand the points that I'm making. He and I have talked about them a yep. number of times. So I think, it, it again, it's hard to lump all people into a type, and I think it probably is a considerable variation within that group. Kagan, of course, did a book some years ago, just two or three years ago, I guess, about uh, our relations with Europe. Mm -hmm. We had we had a discussion with him on that. It's on mm -hmm. our audio archive. And yes, I suppose he felt that we need to be tolerant and understanding of their resentments of us. Yes, I mean, and he he lives in Brussels and is, he knows the Europeans and he understands uh, uh, what's behind some of their thinking. Um, I, he has coined this wonderful phrase that Americans are from Mars and yes. Europeans are from Venus. Um, there's some truth in that, but it's a little bit overstated. Um, uh, the Europeans are less willing to use force than we are, but on the other hand, there were some Europeans willing to use force, and there were many Americans who were against using force. Interestingly, his father, uh, Donald Kagan mm -hmm. of Yale University, a distinguished mm -hmm. historian of classical antiquity, right. is a super hawk and was with regard to the Iraq War, as was uh, the other brother, Fred Kagan. Right. Yeah. No, it's true. And I, and uh, Donald Kagan, the father, has done some wonderful work on the Peloponnesian War, yes, which may be the origins of his thinking. Um, just as it is apparently the origins of the thinking of Victor Davis Hanson, right. whom you probably... But I find, I find uh, Kagan a lot clearer. Uh, <laughs> we pause the last round of commercials and then directly back to more phone calls on 591-7200. And we return to those who are calling us directly on 591-7200. Here is the next caller. Hello, you're on the air. Good evening, gentlemen. I was calling in regards to the events in Lebanon, specifically the last 24 to 48 hours with the assassination of one of the journalists and also a politician who is pro-Western or pro-U.S. and Israeli. Uh, specifically, his name is Jabron Sweeney. Um, I want to ask your guest tonight... You know, with the Lebanese Americans and obviously the Lebanese people over there so frustrated and they're crying out for justice because of the Syrian government, which has infiltrated the fabric of the institutions in that country for 30 years, having their intelligence services operatives operating, even until now as we're speaking, when they're claiming that they took everybody out. What scenario would, would play out? In other words, what would be the most effective way to put the pressure on a Syrian government to truly pull out their um, secret service, al-Muhabarat, and get them back to where they belong and let the Lebanese people really run their own country and their political affairs. Well, I sympathize with you entirely on it. The question is, um, you know, how do you get the Syrians to change the mindset in which they think of... Uh, Lebanon is part of greater Syria. Um, you know, you can get the pressure we saw after the Hariri assassination and the UN inquiry that leads them to withdraw the visible troops, but you don't necessarily get them from uh, meddling behind the scenes. And, and the, the Twenty uh, uh, assassination is, uh, seems to me to be uh, a continuation of that pattern. Uh, whether the, the uh, Melis report, the German investigator, uh, uh, in the UN will put additional pressure on uh, may help somewhat but uh, I think it's pretty it's pretty hard to get mm -hmm. the the Lebanese uh, uh, to change that mindset that uh, I mean to get the Syrians to change that mindset that Lebanon is uh, is part of greater Syria 
actually I have a, a very close Lebanese friend with me, or person who went to school there. Uh, I'm tempted to ask him, but I guess that's outside the, the bounds. No, it's not. Why don't you introduce him? And we'll ask my him. my friend uh, Roger Kamal, who's a uh, uh, a great expert, and I, we should ask Roger to uh, to uh, give his answer. He knows it better than I. Uh, I just I... got uh, back from Lebanon about a, a few days ago, and unfortunately, things have not recovered uh, since the assassination of Rafik Hariri, and uh, the country is still very much shaken up. And clearly, I agree with you that there is a lot of feeling right now in Lebanon that there is Syrians. Uh, the intelligence officers are still. Uh, uh, behind the scenes working and uh, unless there is some serious message uh, delivered to them by the United States or uh, some other powers that they have to stop that I think uh, things will continue can I ask another question yes sir go ahead um, how would you see it play out let's say if uh, the Syrian government collapsed or, um, and, you know, I, I personally, I hope it would collapse because they have done nothing but brought terror and tyranny to the Lebanese people for so long. And unfortunately, us Lebanese Americans here don't have the powerful interest groups like the Israeli APAC, which can definitely put pressure on the U.S. government to do something over there. But back to my question, how do you see it plays out if the Syrian government collapsed? Do you think there will be an upheaval? with the current Alawiyya, which is the minority group that holds the wealth, the power, military and economically? Well, if the Syrian regime collapses, uh, I don't know if that's going to be uh, all good news. Uh, uh, it definitely will be good news, but uh, what would be the alternative? That's the key thing right now, is to consider. Uh, it Obviously, for, for the sake of the region, it helps to have a very secure regime in Syria uh, that's very stable, that's very politically stable, that is. Uh, having said that, the, this current regime needs to, to adjust uh, their behavior. You're talking about a country which is uh, five times the size of Lebanon, yet the economy of it is a fraction of that of Lebanon. Obviously, something has worked well in Lebanon economically that has not and uh, succeeded at the same level in Syria. So clearly... It's, it's called capitalism. I it's think. called capitalism, and capitalism has worked effectively in Lebanon, yeah. and they're obviously trying to, to capitalize on that. That's why Lebanon is so important to Syria. Our thanks to the caller. Time is very short. Let's work in one more quick call. Here it is. Hello, you're on the air. I'd like to ask a question about uh, Turkey and its entry into the European Union. About 10 years ago or more, it was seen that Greece would be the impediment to uh, Turkey's entry. But more recently, the countries of uh, continental Europe, Belgium, Netherlands, Spain, Germany, France, uh, are going to be against, uh, I think, uh, Turkey's entry. And although the U.S. might uh, convince those countries' leaders, uh, Germany and France, if they ever put it to a referendum, I can't see Turkey getting into the European Union. And if the U.S. continues to pressure the European continental countries, we'll alienate our established friends. Uh, would you comment? Well, the interesting thing to start with your first example uh, is the change in Greece over the last decade. Greece certainly would have been the major obstacle. Now the Greeks are one of the uh, proponents. And I think one of the interesting things there is the Greeks say, we're better off as Greece with a Turkey that's tamed by participation in the EU than by a Turkey that turns eastward but is still going to be on our border. 
but you do have a general concern in many continental European countries about um, immigration generally, and also about the effect of uh, a large country um, of Muslims uh, tipping balances within Europe. Uh, Austria has been uh, particularly difficult on this. Within Germany, you have a split. There's a large Turkish population already in Germany. Uh, the previous Chancellor Schroeder was for Turkish entry. The new Chancellor Merkel is opposed to it. Uh, Britain has been uh, very much in favor of Turkish entry. So it's a it's a mixed bag. Our thanks to the caller, and my warm and sincere thanks to Joseph and I for joining us tonight. The book that we've been drawing from, or uh, in which you will find much of the kind of thought that you've heard tonight, uh, so well expressed, is equally well expressed in that book. The title of that book, Soft Power, The Means to Succeed in World Politics by Joseph S. Nye, Jr. And that's published by Public Affairs Books.